My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the December edition of the journal. We have, as a new initiative, produced this extra edition online only to help get papers into a compiled issue quicker. And in the light of the recent COP26 summit in Glasgow, to reduce environmental impact. Of course, all frontline gastroenterologists' papers are available online and fully citable as soon as they complete the production process, which is usually within three weeks of acceptance. I hope very much you like it and enjoy the excellent content. I've highlighted just some of the papers. The first is on foreign body ingestion, do's and don'ts. It's a really helpful and practical guide. Foreign body ingestion, true foreign body ingestion is more common in children, and food bolus impaction is common throughout all age groups. The practical management is not always straightforward. In this issue, Beck and colleagues provide authoritative guidance for the management of foreign bodies located in the upper gastrointestinal tract. It's useful to consider true foreign body ingestion and food bolus impaction where there may be an underlying esophageal abnormality such as eosinophilic esophagitis separately. The initial evaluation is important. Most patients are asymptomatic unless the foreign body is stuck. Radiologists should not delay urgent treatment. Endoscopic extraction is successful in up to 95% of cases. There are numerous specifics discussed in this article. Sharp and pointed objects, long or bulky objects, coins, magnets, batteries, drugs and different foods, all with their own specific guidance. There's a useful algorithm and a helpful summary of do's and don'ts. It's a great article and well worth having to hand when foreign body ingestion presents. The second and related article is on eosinophilic esophagitis, recent advances and practical management. This condition is increasingly recognised. It was first described in 1993, and now it's one of the most common causes of esophageal disease in young people. In this issue, Atwood and Epstein review the recent advances in practical management, starting with the emotive comment, the diagnosis everyone needs to know about for the 2000s, and we are still learning about. The main symptom is dysphagia. Presentation can be with food bolus obstruction. Diagnosis is by endoscopy with three level biopsies. Histology is characterised by a dense eosinophilic infiltrate on a background of hyperplastic mucosa. There are multiple different treatment options, including dietary restriction, proton pump inhibitors and local steroid therapy. Refractory cases need specialist assessment. Strictures can occur in up to 10%. In this review, you get an excellent summary of what we know and how best to manage based on current knowledge. Essential reading. Listen to the accompanying podcast, Editor's Choice This Month. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to 
specific guidance issued by the British Intestinal Failure Alliance for hematological and biochemical monitoring of adult patients requiring home parental nutrition. It's an important piece in which the authors on behalf of BIFA collate the existing guidance. That's guidance from the British Association of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, the European Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, the National Institute of Healthcare Excellence, and the Australian Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. The authors have produced clear and concise guidance in this review. Most of the recommendations are consensus rather than evidence-based, reflecting the paucity of high-quality evidence. There are useful tables summarising the recommendations, which can easily be adopted into clinical practice. The different guidelines are compared, and there's a useful discussion of each of the different parameters measured, including factors that should be considered when interpreting results. This is an invaluable resource for clinicians. Read the paper and linked podcast, and that's Joint Editor's Choice this month. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to the important relationship between self-efficacy, sense of coherence, illness perceptions, depression and anxiety in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. This is really interesting to work through. We all know that anxiety and depression are common in inflammatory bowel disease and we're all aware that this has a significant impact on the disease course. In this issue, Eindor and Arbonnel and colleagues investigate the association of illness perception, self-efficacy and sense of coherence with anxiety and depression in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. 299 patients, median age 34 years. The authors start with a useful discussion of the terminology. In brief, illness perception is an individual's mental representation of a disease. Sense of coherence is a theoretical construct to explain why some people, regardless of stressful events, fall ill and others do not. Self-efficacy is the belief that an individual can carry a task necessary to achieve a desired outcome. Depression and anxiety were assessed using the hospital anxiety and depression scale. Illness perception, sense of coherence and self-efficacy were assessed using the brief illness perception questionnaire. Lower results in IPSE and SOC were found to be associated with significantly increased anxiety. Odds ratio being 8.35, 4.18 and 4.67 respectively and depression with odds ratio of 15.8, 10.9 and 6.12 respectively. IBD is a complex disorder with significant morbidity and these data further support the necessary increase in psychological support for patients to assess, consider and intervene where possible with the likely outcome that this will improve treatment efficacy and quality of life. 
The next paper relates to gut-focused hypnotherapy for children and adolescents with irritable bowel syndrome. So we all know that irritable bowel syndrome is common in children and adolescents with a significant potential impact on quality of life, education and socialisation. The etiology is multifactorial and treatment options are limited. In this issue, Versant and colleagues report their real-world experience with gut-focused hypnotherapy. 32 patients, median age 16 years, 72% female, all with severe IBS as per the Rome 3 diagnostic criteria. All had 12 sessions of gut-focused hypnotherapy. 28 out of 32 responded with significant reductions in the mean IBS symptom severity score. Non-colonic symptoms, anxiety and depression, and quality of life also improved. This report confirms treatment efficacy. Clearly more research is needed. But from this report, gut-focused hypnotherapy is an appropriate treatment option in children and adolescents with IBS, and we should actively consider accessing it for our patients. Continuing with the same theme, we have an expert review on functional abdominal pain in adolescents, looking at case-based management. So functional gastrointestinal disorders, including functional abdominal pain, account for a large portion of conditions seen by paediatricians. Use of the biopsychosocial model, biological, psychological, social, is essential in evaluating and treating cases. And in this article, Jacob and colleagues review the assessment and management with a specific focus on functional abdominal pain in adolescents using a case-based approach. The case vignette they use will be familiar to clinicians. Pathophysiology is multifactorial and not always straightforward. It's really important to be confident in the diagnosis and to avoid over-investigation. Treatment options are considered in detail. That's including the limited evidence base. Functional gastrointestinal disorders, and in particular the pain predominant, have significant impact on quality of life and the ability to function. It's well recognised that children and families respond best when clinicians take the problem seriously, listen carefully, explain the diagnosis thoroughly and present a comprehensive therapeutic plan for treatment. The next article I'd like to highlight relates to telephone clinic in celiac disease. Telephone clinic improves gluten-free diet adherence in adults with celiac disease sustained at six months. So celiac disease is very common. Treatment is with a gluten-free diet and non-adherence is associated with increased morbidity. The difficult question is how to best help such cases, particularly as we recover from the pandemic, with the greater potential for remote rather than face-to-face -face consultations. In this issue, Mohammed and colleagues report on the impact of a personalised telephone clinic, that's 125 patients, 30 of whom were non-adherent, 
They used validated questionnaires to assess gluten-free dietary adherence, knowledge of gluten-free foods, and celiac disease-related quality of life. Gluten-free dietary adherence median scores improved significantly at three and six months after the telephone clinic compared with baseline. Change in gluten-free dietary knowledge was associated with improved gluten-free dietary adherence. In summary, the clinic had a positive impact on the dietary knowledge and gluten-free dietary adherence for targeted individuals. And although we're limited by resources to deliver such initiatives, the intervention should be considered because of the potential long-term impact on disease control and quality of life, and the fact that particularly in non-adherent patients, we can improve their adherence. There's an excellent accompanying commentary, Call Me Maybe, Telephone Clinics for Celiac Disease Dietetic Services. This highlights the paucity of evidence we have to inform quality criteria for celiac disease dietary care and calls for more high-quality multidisciplinary research like this, driven by dietitians, physicians and patients, to inform how we deliver the cornerstone of celiac disease management, the gluten-free diet. I've highlighted just some of the papers, and I hope very much you enjoy this bump edition. Please access the journal website for the, the latest content. Please continue to read and enjoy and feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter, listen to our regular podcasts, and follow the Frontline Gastroenterology Debates. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening.